This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? Famed is thy beauty, Majesty. But hold, a lovely maid I see. Rags cannot hide her gentle grace. Alas, she is more fair than thee. Alas for her. Reveal her name. Lips red as the rose, hair black as ebony, skin white as snow. Snow white. That, of course, is one of the most famous moments in all Disneydom. The moment in Snow White where the Wicked Queen asks her mirror if there are any ladies out there who are better looking than she is. Now, the Queen's reaction when she finds out that she is not, in fact, the fairest of them all may seem excessive. But lots of us women have strange relationships with our own mirrors. At stoplights, we pour over our faces in our visor mirrors looking for stray hairs to pluck out later. We minutely examine our hair for signs of gray, frizziness, or other personal nemeses. And if we're lucky, we check ourselves on the way out of the house and deem ourselves reasonably okay. But no matter what we see when we look in the mirror, chances are it's not a simple image. What women see when we look in the mirror is the subject of a new anthology that's out now from Seal Press. The book's called About Face, and one of the book's editors is Fordham writer-in-residence Christina Baker-Klein. She joins me in the studio this morning, and she's joined by feminist writer Jennifer Baumgartner. Baumgartner is the co-author, most famously, of the third-wave feminist primer Manifesta, Young Women, Feminism, and the Future. In About Face, Baumgartner talks about her ill-fated outing into the world of local beauty pageants. We spoke about the book, about the experience of writing about your own face, and, of course, about Miss World of Wheels. Christina Baker-Klein and Jennifer Baumgartner, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, tell me the story of how this book came to exist. I was thinking about that, actually, this morning before this interview, um, because there were a lot of things that came into play. I'm one of four girls. Uh, women now. And um, so, and I'm the oldest of four. And this is um, women's appearance and body image and the way we look in the world is part of our ongoing discussion as sisters. In addition, my youngest sister just finished a PhD at NYU, uh, which is on the long-term socio- um, physiological and psychological effects of cosmetic surgery on women's self-esteem. Um, she's a psychoanalyst. Um, and I didn't realize until I started talking about this book how much of an impact our conversations had on me as I began working on it. But I, I was struck um, entering my 40s by the conversations that people around me were having about the way they look in the world. And I thought I wanted, I often have this impulse. I've edited other books. I love to edit. I really like listening to smart people and women in particular talk on many subjects. But I wanted to get a group of smart women to talk about what it really means to look in the mirror in a a world in which there's a moral or social imperative, at least, to look a certain way or there are cultural norms that people feel that they 
need to um, adhere to. And, and, and beyond that, too, as I began to teach college again, I've taught before, but I started teaching at Fordham last year, I was struck by, first of all, the incredible diversity of the student body, and second, by the burdens that women are, are under, these 20-year-old women, again, to look a certain way or to feel about themselves, to accept themselves in a world in which everything's changing and there are a lot of ways that you can look. And, and there are, in our book, there's a huge range of cultural backgrounds and identities. So, Jennifer, what were your thoughts when you were first becoming involved in this? I thought it was a great idea because I think as feminists, and Christina and I both identify as feminists, in some way there's there's this um it's not really a pressure but you get the impression that you should just right away be like I do not I've worked out my body image issues because they're patriarchal they were imposed on me and so therefore I eat whatever I want I do not care what I look like because it's the content of my character and and just kind of realizing that when people say that they're they're usually just so lying and in fact reinforcing beauty shame because then people who are kind of struggling with their looks or are, do have bad hair days or whatever aren't allowed to um, be honest about it. And so I, I felt like it was a really good feminist topic. And they made it when they when they asked people to write for it, they made it really clear that they didn't want some screed against plastic surgery. You could have opinions against plastic surgery, but that would not be interesting for this book. And that was appealing to me. Because I was just thinking, I'm a writer in residence at the new school. And I look at my students, they're so young and so beautiful. And some of the girls, in particular one, really want to write about um, plastic surgery all the time and how it's so terrible and how women feel the need to do it. But meanwhile, she's 21. She's gorgeous. I was just like, why are you why are you obsessed with this right now? What is it a stand-in for, for real, in terms of anxiety about your looks? Because you don't need to... You don't need to worry about me or people older than me yet. I mean, one of the things, uh, I was just rereading some pieces in the book, and there's one by an Iranian, a half-Iranian woman, who writes about her nose, not because it doesn't fit a cultural norm uh, exactly, but her nose to her represented an other in society. So it's complicated. Like, there are people who, say, want to get a nose job. Bobby Brown opens the book talking about her. her mother suggested she get a nose job simply to make her more acceptable. And then there are people for whom the way they look is culturally specific, and they encounter prejudice as a result of that. And that's another whole layer of experience. This is kind of a big question, but what were you hoping to accomplish here? What kind of a project is this? I think what we really wanted to accomplish, and I brought my friend Ann Burt, who's a fantastic writer and editor, to in to help me uh, do the book, was to find a broad range of ages and backgrounds and hear from people um, who haven't necessarily written on this subject before, but who are all thinkers in the world and are writers in some way or another. So our, the women in the book range between the ages of 22 and 75. Our oldest woman is now 76. And uh, they're from a huge variety of backgrounds. We wanted to get a picture of what it's like today in the world for women, to walk through the world with the faces that they have or the faces they did things to or chose not to, what it means for them and how they can think about it in a really intelligent way how they can help other people by, in part, help other people by expressing what's true to them about the way they look. Jennifer, you were kind of getting at this with the story about your student, but for both of you, why is, why is now an especially good time to be doing a book like this? One of the things I didn't talk about is that when I started thinking about this idea, it was several years ago when that French woman had a face transplant. And there were all these conversations going on about whether the way you look informs the person you are in the world and what it would mean to her to have a different face, literally a different face, 
transplanted over her old bone structure, what that would mean. I just uh, last week saw a follow-up interview with her, and she's got a team of psychiatrists, and she's, you know, working through the myriad questions that it would mean to for to that experience. That was, a, to me, a literal manifestation of what many people go through. First of all, as they get older and their faces naturally change. Second, as they have procedures done or they gain weight or lose weight, as Jennifer was saying, your self-image can change depending on what you look like. And third, just the prevalence of Hollywood types that because they're so broadly spread, uh, we see them on every show, you know, they're in every magazine. Every magazine is telling you how to look younger and how to, um, what you can do. And in fact, certain very mainstream magazines are advocating plastic surgery. I think it's a time when women don't quite know how to age gracefully. I mean, or we're all looking for a path to do it in a way that feels right to us without necessarily succumbing to stereotypes also feeling that the choices we make, we're free to make and that we're not going to be judged. When you were when you were editing this and also when you were writing your essay, what, what did you find that surprised you? Our editor asked us to open each piece with a paragraph that each writer would describe how they look, what they see when they look in the mirror. And she thought that would be a nice way to sort of tie the pieces together. Interestingly, what we found is that it was really boring. There's only so much you can say about your nose or your mouth, and it's very hard to visualize. We ended up putting pictures in, which I really like. We have a photograph of each woman who's written a piece. But that surprised me, that it's actually really hard to talk about what you look like unless you're describing yourself in reference to something else. So we chose to come at it sideways. I guess the second thing that surprised me is just that we worked hard to find a range of voices, but I was struck at the end by how creative our writers were at coming at this topic from all different directions. I think there's a way in which a book like this, which is on a very narrow topic, could have pieces that all sound the same. And instead, what we found, and what we tried to do as we put the book together, was to make connections between pieces. So as you read one, you'd go to the next one, and there might be something connected to it, but it veers off in a completely different direction. I was surprised at the the range that we managed. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Those women in Miss America, are they skinny or are they fat? Honey? Well, they're skinny, I guess. Yeah. Guess they don't eat a lot of ice cream. Okay. Coffee? Today on the show, we're talking with Christina Baker-Klein and Jennifer Baumgartner. They are the editor and one of the contributors, respectively, to the new book About Face. Women write about what they see when they look in the mirror. The book's out from Seal Press. Jennifer Baumgartner's piece in the book is the story of one of her more embarrassing adolescent experiences and what it means to her today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 24th annual Little Miss Sunshine Pageant! Yes! Now please put your hands together once again and help me welcome to the stage our 12 beautiful contestants! My piece is called Ms. World of Wheels, and it's about this World of Wheels pageant. I'm from Fargo, North Dakota, and this pageant I was in when I was a teenager, and probably at my most self-conscious in my, <laughs> that I've ever been in my life, and it went really poorly, and how I kind of uh, revised the story in my head for a long period of time to make it less painful to me, to make my failure less painful. And um, 
And then how one day I realized it was not that big of a deal, like it no longer had power over me, this embarrassing caper. I mean, this is what I this is kind of what I mean about what was exciting about this kind of book and and working with people like Christina and Anne is we're now 30 years into the second wave of feminism. And a lot of the analyses that were made then of the beauty industry are still really true. And you can even just go deeper. And some of them are inadequate, you know, or we've now had an opportunity to discover how much of it was our investment or is there any, is there any just objective value to, you know, makeup and doing your hair? Is there, you know, and I think we have more of an opportunity to sift through those things now. I mean, and I think that it took me a long time to realize that I didn't have to cover up for the fact that I was sort of obsessed, you know, hopefully not obsessed that I didn't care about anything else, but was obsessed in some ways with my looks. Something else that you talk about that I I really enjoyed and I want to mention because I've had this thought many times, which is, um, I'm going to read this, dazzling, streaky-haired Gloria Steinem once said something along the lines of, no one thought I was beautiful until I was a feminist, which was probably true, but not the whole story, because she is, in fact, really very attractive. She's going to be 75 this year, and she, I mean, she's gorgeous, yeah. I mean, so it's sort of like, really, no one thought you were beautiful until then? That's that's interesting, you know. And I think it's true that when she got into this world of feminists, where there was this critique of, like, shaving and stuff, she probably looked even more glamorous and stood out more, but... She's gorgeous, categorically. When you were writing this essay, Jennifer, what what do you remember thinking about? For me, it's always kind of fun to go on trips down memory lane. I have sisters, too. I'm from a family of three girls, and we spent a lot of time just laughing about who we were like yesterday, you know, much less as teenagers, and kind of going over that family mythology and family histories. So in a way, it's just kind of gleeful for me to find these anecdotes and find a use for them get paid to use them, you know. And another way is always kind of painful because I do think it's important to write as honestly as you possibly can and therefore you do usually have to like acknowledge some vulnerability or something, something you want that you didn't quite have or still maybe don't quite have. And so I th- I think it definitely made me made me think about that a little bit, like my relationship to my to my quote looks and and it's weird. I do you bringing up Gloria Steinem, I do think that if you're kind of not stereotypically beautiful, you're kind of more allowed to talk about that. One of the things that I love about editing and I particularly liked about this book is that it's like peeling an onion to when people write essays, they'll often write a draft and it what doesn't get at something that it's clear they they need to get to or they want to get to or as Jennifer said is so painful but so necessary to express and figure out how to, what you feel about that 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 uncovering process is a is is very exciting. Um, and being able to look at a piece as I do as an editor and say, there's something here, you're going in a direction here, or you're not addressing something that actually you need to talk about directly. And then people do. And that's amazing. Um, I mentioned this Iranian woman in the book who uses a pseudonym. She actually writes under a pseudonym because she's afraid for people to read it whom she knows. But This is another thing about doing the book when you were asking what was surprising about it. She writes about going back to Iran and donning the traditional garb and feeling paradoxically freed because she's not looked at on the street the way she is in New York. And she writes, I just want to read you this one tiny part. There's a global, she's talking about how in Iran, as a result, there are all these nose jobs. She's walking down the street and she sees 12 women with bandages over their nose noses, which is seen as sort of a status symbol because it's the only part of you that's seen and you're 
conforming to a Western ideal in that strange little part. Um, She says, there's a global conception of feminine beauty standardized by the West even here. It's the same striving toward Barbie ideal I know too well, oddly positioned in Iran as an act of resistance against the shapeless black shadows of religious Shiism. But covered or uncovered, it seems to me, the complex subjectivity of women can still remain invisible. If the choices are between the rules of the cleric and the rule of the beauty industry, how will we ever gain real control over our lives or over how we see ourselves? And she positioned herself so she didn't quite know what she was writing toward, but in getting toward it, I think she uncovered something very powerful about that conflict and that contradiction. And many of the pieces are about living with contradiction. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On today's show, a look at the wild and crime-ridden New York of the 1920s and 30s. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Christina Baker-Klein and Jennifer Baumgartner. We'd already talked about what the editors of the book were looking for when they conceived the idea. But I was curious about what the book ended up being after everyone had done their writing. I asked Baker Klein what she thought. Obviously, beauty is a component of it. But some of the really powerful pieces are about family, Um, not cultural expectations necessarily, but family expectations, number one. And then, of course, as I said before, about race and the role that that plays in people's lives. And then another one is about, um, there's a piece called Losing Face by a writer named Annalise Jacimides. She writes about depression and how it robbed her of her expressions and of the face that she had come to know that was her own. And she became something else entirely. So there are many ways that this story is broader about how we see ourselves in the world. And it's it is very complicated, and it's fun to talk about and to, to read as you go through the book and see how people come down on on these um, sides and parts. So, Christina, what was it like reading all these essays? It was really exciting to read them. I loved one would come over the transom, usually in email form, and I would try to sit down right away and read it quickly and then read it again more slowly um, because the what was truly exciting was that when you ask a group of really smart women to all respond to a topic, you never know what you're going to get. And it was truly exciting to see the different directions people went in. For example, one woman, um, Pamela Redmond Satran is her name, she writes The Glamour List. She writes a lot of magazine pieces. And I didn't know what she was going to say about beauty, except that I know that she's been writing for Glamour for a long time and has been sort of has read every article on beauty. She ended up actually focusing on her, her teeth on how uh, she had to do all this dental surgery and what that meant ultimately to how she felt about herself in the world. It was a very narrow slice of the question, but it was one that worked really well for her because she was able to extrapolate and go into all these different directions with it. So I think the surprise of the way people went with it. Another writer, Catherine Texier, wrote about coming to the morgue to view her mother's body and lifting the sheet and seeing herself. Um, and the profound effect that that experience had on her and her sense of identity in the world. Now, the book's been out for only a couple of months. Have you guys both received a lot of response about this? 
I have been, I was up in Maine uh, for the summer, and I did about 10 different appearances with several contributors, and we're just launching a whole bunch of ones here. But the response has been great. I've been getting a lot of emails from women. I have it on my website, which is my name, ChristinaBakerKlein.com, um, and places that you can write me and talk about it. And what I'm finding is that in one way or another, there's such a variety of voices that they resonate for people in different ways, and sometimes in ways that you don't even expect as you're reading a piece. Uh, in other words, you'll you'll start a piece that seems to have nothing to do with you, but then um, as you move through it, you start connecting with things in it. Jennifer, how did the work that you did for this essay, how does, well, how does this essay overall fit into the larger body of work that you do? I write a lot of things that um, involve anecdotes from my life as confessional sort of work. But I generally write, and I write a lot of, fe- quote, feminist theory, that, but in a more popular context, I am trying to write in a more humorous way. And I think it's because I'm more tired and I tend to read things that are more humorous at this point. And, um, you mean because of having a child? I guess, or something's wrong with me. I think it is because of having a child. But, <laughs> um, and, and so I'm so drawn to things that make me laugh at, because, it, because it makes me relax. And therefore, I think out of respect for readers who must feel the way I feel, I want to, so I'm trying harder and harder to find humor. And I would say it fits into my emerging, um, worldview, which is that at a minimum, make them laugh. <laughs> Christina, you didn't write an essay in this, so I will ask you, if you had been asked to write an essay, what would you have spoken about? I thought about that a lot. Um, uh, One of the things I love about editing is that I can control the process and I don't have to write a piece myself. I never wanted to write a piece for this. I think partly because I wasn't sure how I would do that. You know, I'm a novelist. I don't really write memoir. I love to read it. But I don't really write it. I have a very complicated family, as I said, with lots of people. And I have never figured out a way to write about myself and my own experiences. That I, I just wrote a personal essay, actually. But I prefer not to do it if I have a choice. And fiction, for me, is a way of taking all of the stuff and putting it into a blender and figuring out a way to write about it that that makes sense to me, that becomes an analysis for myself of the world, I guess. So I guess that's a long way of saying I'm not exactly sure. I had some ideas, but I didn't feel ultimately that, and, and we found this actually talking to writers. It seemed that when we approached people, either they had a really strong sense of how to approach it, or they just never quite figured that out. And unless you've got something very specific to say on the subject, it can be hard. And part of it is exercising the muscle of writing about yourself, which I know, Jennifer, you do very well. And we have a number of people in the book are people who've written memoir in various forms and who write a lot of... uh, We have um, a number of people who've written full-length memoirs and a lot who also write personal essays. And you exercise that muscle and it kind of becomes more available to you, I think. There's a way in which you're, you figure out a process for sifting through all those things that come through. And as you say, Jennifer, using anecdotes from your past to illustrate moments. So I'm not sure. Well, it's interesting because I think that in memoir and, and autobiographical writing, you, you're objectifying elements of your life in order to tell a story. And, and I always am definitely telling the truth, but it's like a truth. I'm, right. It's not. And I think novels probably are telling I know you're not writing novels that are Romanoclef or whatever, but I think that they are telling truths, emotional truths that you know. And um, 
it is that whole thing that I sometimes people are like, God, you really people if they Googled you could really find out a lot. And it's like, yes, they could. But it's really and in some ways not in some ways, not very much. They, it, it, it's kind of what you let out there and it's very controlled. Well, it's what you let out there. and But there's also a way in which, as you said, it's a freeing process. Like you let go of this. You put it out in the world and it doesn't – it's not a secret you're hiding anymore. And as you say, it's a part of the story. And um, there's a funny thing people talk about when they finish writing these pieces. Sometimes, especially when they're beginning writers – People are terrified about, oh, such and such is going to get told. But there's a way in which it feels liberating to tell a story and have it in print, and you can sort of move on from it and go to the next thing. What have the responses been from men that you've known or who have spoken to you about this who've read the book? That's a really good question. Um, People have asked me why I didn't include men in the book. There's definitely a book to be written. (laughs) on this subject uh, by men, for men. I didn't do it because I felt that I was talking very specifically about the way females feel, first of all, are objectified in society, but also really about the centuries, as we say in the introduction, that women have had to deal with the fact that beauty for women is a different thing than it is for men. The way you look in the world, the way you go through the world is different for women than it is for men. And I wanted to limit it that way because I wanted it to be those voices. Um, The men I've talked to who've read this book um, express surprise and amazement that there, first of all, that there are so many different ways of talking about this quite narrow subject. And second, that they have a much deeper sense of what it means to be um, a woman whose face determines a lot about the way people respond immediately And one of the things that I was struck by, an other interviewer asked me this question, and I I think this is not a politically correct response, but she said, what did you learn most of all, or what what was surprised you about the book in the end? And I said, what I, I think what, I think what I was struck by cumulatively is that whatever issues white women have with the way they look, it is nothing compared to what it feels like to be a woman of color, I'm sure a man of color as well, going through uh, our world with its cultural norms and expectations and prejudices and having to confront that before you even confront any other questions, that people make immediate judgments about you based on the color of your skin and that that's something very different from the experience of simply worrying about what your face looks like, you know, if you were tired or puffy or beautiful or less beautiful when you're a white woman. What else do you think people can read that will talk about these sorts of things? What other kinds of... I think that um, we were just discussing O Magazine. I do think there are magazines that are going after these deeper questions and that are are not accepting uh, that there's... There's only one way, you know, in other words, that are questioning the premises that we, that sort of socially, societally we have about what's beautiful, what's accepted. Um, I'm trying to think about other books you can read. I mean, of course, there are cultural critiques. Um, there, There's all kinds of um, feminist literature mm-hmm. on this subject. Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth is still... In print. Yeah. That was, the, that was the big one when I was in college. Um, there's nothing immediately in the moment, though. There's nothing mm-hmm. that I know of that is, there's no book like this one that I know of at the moment. I'm, for some reason, when I was reading this, I thought of the um, the book, The Bluest Eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. 
but again, 25, 30 years ago. But it, that's so true. I think, and I think it's because very few people have understood how in a feminist way, and maybe it is that it has to be a collection. How can you integrate what we've learned as feminists? You know, I think feminist theory around beauty standards has really permeated regular culture. And at the same time, write a non-polemical, honest, you know, I, I think we're just beginning to express that those honest feelings about beauty. And I think that magazine editors, because they're all sort of our age, of all the major women's magazines, Glamour, L.O., they are all grappling with this on some level because it's what they believe. It's what they're dealing with. They they don't want to throw all beauty products out and, like, ban them. And at the same time, they recognize the way in which it's in some ways contributes to um, them feeling invisible if they're not looking right. Well, Christina Baker-Klein and Jennifer Baumgartner, thanks so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you Thank so you. much for having us. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's in our audio archive as well, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. You're only pretty as you feel Only pretty as you feel inside You're only pretty as you feel Just as pretty as you feel inside When you wake up in the morning Rub some sleep from your eye. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.